This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Several days ago, uh, and some of these stories you may have heard, some of these you may not have heard, but several days ago, after a police officer pulled over a car in South Carolina, the driver went on Facebook and told a story of how he had been racially profiled, how he'd been threatened with a beating, how he'd been accused of carrying drugs, and said that he had, in fact, told his wife and granddaughter, who were sitting in the back seat of the car, not to move because he was worried that they might be shot by the white police officer who had stopped them. This is very troubling stuff. We've heard stories like this before. We know how these things can turn out. We know how, what the problems are that can lead from behaviors like this from a police officer. Well, a couple nights ago, after this, a couple nights ago in Dallas, a woman said that an officer pulled her over for drunk driving and then told her he would let her go if she would provide some sexual favors for her. She then said that he touched her inappropriately, that he sexually assaulted her in the back of the cruiser. She went to a lawyer who publicly went out and explained the situation and called for an investigation and on and on and on of the police officers. Even more troubling, perhaps. Really nasty stuff that these police officers did. Here's the problem. Both cops were wearing body cameras. Video cameras attached to your chest that record everything they do. The civilians apparently didn't notice this, you have to assume, because when senior officers reviewed the tapes, it was proven that none of the allegations, not any part of these allegations, were true, not even close. There was nothing of the kind that happened. When you watch the video, both officers were exceedingly polite, exceedingly professional, exceedingly respectful, had ample reason to pull over these people and did their job in a manner that they were supposed to. There are lots and lots of questions that stem out of a situation like this, but I just want to focus on one of them today, and that is the body cameras, because had these officers not been wearing these, their reputations in all likelihood today would be destroyed. Their careers would be destroyed. There could be all kinds of problems leading up to civil unrest. We've seen that before. Let me bring in Clint Tulin, who's the uh, head, the president of the Hamilton Police Association. Clint, thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. When you hear stories like this, it always leads me back to Hamilton, and I say, our officers here don't wear these. Why not yet? Why are, why are the police officers in Hamilton not wearing something like this? Well, um, it is an expensive technology, and there are varying um, opinions on the validity and the usefulness of it. Uh, when you look at it, and you'll hear me say this often, a cost-to-benefit ratio. Um, it, it, they are very expensive. Now the costs have done have gone down. The technology itself has become cheaper. And one of the main concerns as well was storage. Storage used to be a huge issue in that the cost was so high, but now you can, uh, you can store information and data to the cloud. So that's become a little bit cheaper. But I think one of the, one of the main reasons is the value for, for a pretty significant cost on a year-to-year basis. That said, if I'm correct, and I was reading this online, your association has publicly taken the position you don't have a problem with wearing these. It's just the cost of them makes them somewhat prohibitive. Absolutely. Um, and, I mean, we, we have to, in Hamilton, we're a frugal policing organization. We, we do the best we can with, uh, with what we have. And if it's going to be money that I'm not going to say is wasted but could be spent uh, elsewhere, that's certainly that the chief, is something that the chief of police has to look at. So, But, no, you're absolutely right. And I'll tell you, as time goes on, uh, I'm becoming a little bit more supportive of body camps. Well, you hear stories like this, and for any police officer, a story like this must enrage you because you. I think everyone recognizes 
if it's a he said she said or he said he said or whatever else and someone doesn't believe the police officer this is this is devastating for their career for their life it absolutely is and yes i would say it enrages me but it's it doesn't surprise me it, it's it's a fairly common occurrence to be really honest with you i mean we deal with it uh, through the association we deal with complaints all the time and i wouldn't say as egregious as this because this particular individual went out and got a um, a civil rights lawyer who then promoted her her position quite publicly obviously and the impact on that police officer in my understanding he and his family were getting death threats uh you know the the things that go along with that you're absolutely right uh it's 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 wonderful that he had that body camera on but i'll tell you a lot of the damage has already been done flip side of this though clinton we know that every single profession has bad apples everybody does things in every different profession has some people that make mistakes Fair to say that if a police off a police officer had done the kinds of things that were being alleged by these people, you as an association, even though you are supporting them and are part of them, you would want those people's behavior, those officers' behavior, to be shown and, and get rid of those kind of people. You're absolutely right. We don't, as an association, we protect our members, uh, but we don't condone that behavior. And officers, and you're right, they're. They are few and far between, despite, you know, the, the amount of media coverage that we get when, when a particular officer does something wrong. Those incidents are so few and so far between. Even in Canada alone, we're talking about millions of calls of ser- uh, for service every year. Uh, and, and absolutely, if somebody is disparaging me as a police officer, I don't want them on the street. Right. If, yeah, you don't want... Uh, and it's the same in every profession. I would assume that you want to get the bad ones off there and... and you're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. The thing that really strikes me about this is, especially down in the States, we are finding and we are seeing cases where there are discrepancies, disagreements on what happened between say, between a police officer and a civilian that go on and on and on and the fights start and li- sometimes literally, sometimes civil unrest. These things could all be very quickly sorted out if there was more often than not, if there was a body cam, couldn't it? I agree. I agree totally. Um, the, the cameras and the body cameras themselves, there are limitations to them, and that's something that I've spoken about before. Uh, you know, when you're in an active, violent situation, the picture that you're going to get from a body cam is not what you would think. It's not, it's not like seeing on TV a clear-cut, uh, you know, straight-line video of what's really occurring. But when it comes to the interactions with, with citizens on a one-to-one basis, uh, you've seen in these recent circumstances where the pictures are very clear, the, 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 what is being filmed is very clear, the, the audio is very clear. And so you're absolutely right. Uh, when it comes to cases like this, it would, certainly help, um, it would certainly help the police officer in these particular cases. And I do agree that um, when, when there's allegations of police misconduct, the body camera would certainly illustrate that as well. I mean, the example that obviously comes to mind, and there's a number, but the one in Ferguson, Missouri, a couple of years ago, where there was a, a discrepancy, a, a difference of opinion, whatever you want to call it, about whether the police officer randomly shot a guy in the back with his arms in the air or whether the guy lunged for the police officer's gun and it went off. Uh, even in that kind of case, uh, you have to think that there's enough of a discrepancy in their descriptions that even if it's not a perfect shot of the video, you'd at least be able to discern which one is closer to the truth. I mean, it, it, it just get, and then you have all these riots and everything else that may have happened anyway, if it turned out the police officer did misbehave, but if he didn't, that thing, those are stopped. Those are prevented. 
I would agree with you, yes. And, and, and once again, you know, whether you're looking for a clear-cut, you know, TV-type shot, that's one thing. But uh, the, the body cams certainly would illustrate the, the general dynamics of any given situation. And, can, uh, you know, the audio as well can really tell a tale. I have to believe that whether it's these cases we're talking about or others, that officers in Hamilton, your officers are aware of these situations. They hear about it. They probably talk about it. If it happens in someone's profession, they're probably going to talk about it. What's the sentiment, do you think, among the officers when it comes to body camps? Well, I think it it depends on the officer and it depends on their experience, to be honest, because, uh, I mean, like I said, I I, uh, regularly um, defend, I guess, or represent our members in allegations. And any of the officers who have been through something where they've been falsely accused of something, that's one of the first things that they'll say, that they sure wish they had a body cam on at the time of that particular incident. So I guess it just depends on the, uh, on the experience from the officer. But I know as time goes on, and we've had significant changes to the PSA, Bill 175 is out, where a complaint can come in. And what they've done is they've changed the, uh, the burden of proof under the new act. So when there's an allegation, it, it has now moved from clear and convincing evidence. Uh, we took that to the, actually took that all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada to uh, a balance of probabilities, which is a civil standard um, when it comes to the burden of proof. And what that means for our officers is uh, when, when somebody is hearing one of these allegations, it's basically who might be more believable. And I think that when, when you look at some of the allegations, I think body cams would be a huge benefit to our officers. Just had an email from a listener, Alain, who says, please ask your guests whether Matt, Matthew Green, Councillor Matthew Green's situation would have been easier to resolve with body cameras. That would have been resolved uh, uh, right from the start, to be brutally honest, and it would have saved the uh, Hamilton taxpayers uh, tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, I'll be brutally honest, because that is exactly what that was. That was uh, one particular in- individual, Councillor Green, making statements which... Uh, the hearing officer found to be not credible, and the police officer having a completely different stance. And had he been more wearing a body cam, we could have uh, closed that file, uh, I would say, hours after the allegations because, arose. Because, again, in that particular case, there's no violent struggle. There's no reason to believe the camera would not have captured it. That's right. Now, that's I, should, I should jump in, though, because the ca- as I recall, the officer was sitting in his cruiser. Would that have captured it if he was sitting in his cruiser, or would his chest have been pointed at the steering wheel? His chest would have been pointed at the steering wheel, but one of the biggest things and one of the biggest points of contention uh, were the, it was the interaction and the demeanor and the, the tone and the volume of the two individuals. Um, and so that would have been clearly shown in the, in the um, body cam through the audio that uh, the officer was calm and polite and, and whatnot. Um, and so while you might not have got an exact picture of it, you certainly would have heard We only have a few seconds left here. Going back to the cases in the States, which are just so incredibly egregiously over-the-top horrible, do people ever get charged when they make kind of these allegations and then it's proven, whether it's against police or anyone else? If you file, I mean, there's a charge out there for filing a false police report. Do they ever happen? I'm going to say in my experience in Canada, no. Um, it, it, it is um, really when it comes to making a complaint against an officer, if it's found to be false, it's, uh, I'm not going to say brushed under the rug, but it's, it's forgotten. And that happens in SIU cases as well. I, I know personally of really egregious um, allegations that have been made against police officers, and they've proven to be completely false. Uh, you'll hear the argument that if we start charging these people, it's going to discourage other people from coming forward. I've, I totally dismiss that. If you're telling the truth 
and you if if a police officer's done something to you and you want to put a complaint in please put it in and we'll we'll go through the investigative process we have uh, independent bodies that do that and the truth will eventually come out it's a fascinating topic it's uh, i'm sure it's upsetting on both sides if you are the one who's not being believed police or otherwise but um, listen clint Toolan of the hamilton police service really appreciate the time today thanks for doing this thanks for having me on you're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Probably did hear that the NFL yesterday, the day before, put new rules in place around the National Anthem. Of course, this goes back to last year when, uh, starting with Colin Kaepernick and other players, began taking knees during the anthem as a sign of protest. They decided they weren't going to stand, they were going to take a knee on the sideline, This created a massive controversy. There were those who sided with the players and their position. There were those who said they were being totally disrespectful to the country in which they live. Well, here's the problem with that then. You are running an operation. You're running a business that is reliant on the goodwill of the people. If you cut out half your audience, which the NFL started to have numbers going down for TV viewership, don't know if that was exactly why, but that was one of the suspicions. The league decided they had to do something. So... Beginning this year coming up, players will get a fine, they will be fined, if they don't stand during the anthem. Now, they are allowed to remain in the dressing room until after the anthem if they don't think they can stand for the anthem, but there will be no more kneeling or you will face a fine if you do that. Well, this has satisfied some people. There are a number of people who have come out and said this is a good decision by the league, you got to respect the country, on and on and on. There are others, however, who claim this is trampling on free speech and free expression and First Amendment rights and all those kinds of things. Is it, though? It sounds like it is, but is it? John Pincus is a labor and employment lawyer with Sanfiru Tumark and Law Firm. He joins us now. John, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. Good evening. Uh, So let's work our way through this for a second. If I am Joe Citizen, who is sitting in the stands in an NFL stadium and the national anthem comes on, I am on my own time. I am representing only myself. I have every opportunity as a free citizen to stand, to sit, to kneel, to lie down, to drink a beer, whatever, during the anthem, correct? There's no nothing that forces me to pay attention to that anthem. That would that would be right. Yes. Now, if I am there as part of my employment, I'm working for one of the TV broadcast networks or something else, and I am in the stadium as an employee of a company, I am now on company time, correct? And so if they have rules in place, I am obligated, am I, to follow their rules, even though potentially that may sound like it's a breach of my free expression? I mean, the first thing that should be noted here is that the the purpose of free expression, at least in Canadian terms, is to protect you from criminal prosecution, right, and protect you from other government sorts of intervention. And when you work for a private enterprise, so that's not really going to be at play. So for most people, uh, particularly people who work in the private sector, uh, these sorts of protections, which are, are more restrained in Canada in any event than they are uh, in the United States, aren't really going to apply, right? So there's, there's no such thing really as a charter right um, in the workplace because uh, the charter is meant to prevent government overreach. And we're talking about uh, an employee versus an employer. Uh, it's, a, it's an unequal relationship, but it's a, it's a um, private relationship nonetheless. So an employer can impose rules and restrictions on on what uh, employees can do. Now, in, in this case, uh, we're dealing with uh, players, and I, I think the way that 
uh, if I if I recall, the way that these um, players are going to be punished is, is sort of collectively the team is going to be fined, and so you know there there might there, it's a collective repercussion for them, and you know if we transpose that to uh, the Canadian setting or a typical workplace. You know, you you can be reprimanded uh, for violating workplace policies, and that that may seem unfair. And if that policy isn't reasonable, then um, you're going to have certain rights if the employer gets rid of you. Uh, but you're you're not going to ever going to be able to say, well, this is a freedom of speech issue. It's it's either. Um, going to be something that is a serious violation or a minor violation. But in either, in either instance, if you want to work for that company, uh, the employer can impose that. So if a company, for example, uh, says that employees must wear a uniform, you cannot, I would assume, then say, no, freedom of expression allows me to wear whatever I want. I don't have to wear my uniform. Th- that would be the company saying, no, if you wish to work for us and it's your choice, you're not forced to work for us. Therefore, if you wish to, you must wear the uniform, otherwise you don't work for us. Generally speaking, that's true, right? So unless, you know, we, we've had some issues in Canada with, well, you know, specific women's uh, uniforms right. being a human rights violation and, and that kind of thing. So unless it runs afoul of uh, the Human Rights Code or, for example, the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So if your employer is asking you to do something unsafe, obviously you don't have to do that. If they're asking you to do something that is clearly discriminatory on its face on the basis of one of the grounds in the code, age, uh, age, you know, ethnic origin, gender, gender expression, any of those grounds, then that may be problematic. But if it's just you have to wear a uniform or, you know, in this case, you're expected to stand for the anthem because uh, we're being watched, I don't think the employee really has any grounds to say, well, there's, you know, this is illegal. They might say, I'm not doing it. Uh, but then the employer might just say, well, then see ya. And, and they can do that. Of course, and you mentioned the code. I mean, you mentioned the the, the human rights code that we yeah. can't have. You know, you can't allow someone to stand up and yell anti-Semitic jokes, for example, in your in your office space. That would be something. Or you can't force someone to wear revealing clothing. What if it's the opposite? What if someone showed up and said, "I I insist on wearing a bathing suit to work every day." I mean, can, can a company say, "No, that's that's it's not allowed in our rules. We're not going to let you do that." Absolutely, a company can say that. If you work in an office environment and you insist on coming to work in a Speedo, uh, absolutely the company can enforce a dress code, which hopefully they have in writing, uh, that says, no, you can't do that. We're maintaining an office work environment, and that's not appropriate. And if you refuse, they can let you go. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Is telling someone they must do something in the office as part of company policy or not do something, is that offending their right to free expression or do companies have the right to do that? Chatting with John Pincus, a labor and employer, employment lawyer with Sam Firu Tumarkin Law Firm. And you were just saying before the break, John, that companies have a right or an obligation or a chance to put in reasonable rules for their office. They can't be offensive. They can't be against the human rights code. Who determines that word reasonable? How, how do we know that a company's, the rules that they determine are reasonable really are reasonable? Well, in large part, it's going to depend on what kind of job it is, right? So someone, for example, who has a very public-facing role, uh, you know, for, for example, someone who hosts, uh, um, you know, a, a radio show, for example, <laughs> is going to be expected to maintain, you know, certain um, 
uh, you know, certain levels of, of decorum uh, and certain, you know, and, and is going to be expected to, uh, you know, maintain certain levels of, uh, ex- I, I guess, acceptable discourse. And, I wish you'd told me that a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think more, even more significantly, especially if you're looking at someone who's, uh, let's say, CEO, right? These are the people that are going to be especially scrutinized. And even there, in those cases, um, someone who is, even their off-duty conduct um, can, um, you know, can, can be cause for uh, dismissal in, in some situations. Well, we saw that a year or so ago, right? With the at the at the soccer game in Toronto, the person who rep- who worked for Hydro who went on TV and said something offensive to the reporter, and temp- they got their job back. But at that time, they were fired because people recognized them as a Hydro employee. Right now, now, ultimately, that that person, I I think was uh, was ultimately reinstated. They were, yeah, they were. But uh, but but the, but that's really just a. I think probably, uh, although I'd, I'd, I've never seen the decision in that case, uh, I would imagine that it had something to do with the kind of role that person had. Right, that person wasn't the CEO of Hydro One. They were they weren't someone in uh, where, where they were expected to to maintain a level of. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly the word for it, but they're they're not. They're not such a, a high-ranking figure where they, it would be expected that they're going to be scrutinized, where they're expected to basically be the face of the company, right? So different people are going to be held to different standards. And it's also going to depend on what your interactions are with the public, right? So if you're just having uh, a conversation with uh, someone in the office, it's going to be very different uh, than if you are making a, a speech in public. Uh, so it, it it comes down to what's the effect on the organization likely to be, um, and there are limits to free speech. In fact, there's limits to free speech even with respect to what you can be prosecuted for, right? So um, even in terms of your right to free speech under the charter, which is not really um, going to be at issue uh, for the most part in the workplace, um, you, you can't engage in hate speech, right? You, you, your right to free speech does not trump someone else's right um, to be free from hate speech. And so that, that's the way that we have negotiated the social contract in Canada. And so no matter where you are, there's going to be limits. But especially when you're working for an organization, um, you, every employee should appreciate that there's going to be rules. And as, so long as those rules are proportionate to what your duties are at the organization, as long as they're safe and don't violate uh, your human rights, you're going to be expected to follow those rules. So let's get back then to the point where we started this, which was the NFL putting in rules that require players to stand for the anthem or not be on the field. They can't kneel. They can't make that protest anymore. Mm -hmm. By what you've just described then, NFL players, although they are well-paid, although they are famous, they are employees of an employer, of a team, and of a league. And so on Sunday, when they're in that stadium, they are in their workplace, therefore whatever rules, realistic rules, reasonable rules that are put in place by their employer, they do not have an unfettered right to say or do whatever they want. Their freedom of expression doesn't trump the rules of the employer. Yeah, I think if we transpose this to the Canadian context, and we'd probably have to transpose it also to the non-unionized context, uh, then I, I think that would be a, a fair statement. You know, they may have things in their their collective agreements or, or independent employment agreements that uh, that interfere with that. But absent those kinds of things, I think that 
uh, an organization would be entitled to impose these kinds of restrictions. And the consequences to that uh, would be maybe public relations, would maybe be political, but legally, I, I don't see it. And I think that if they wanted to get rid of an employee who wasn't following those rules, and there was a reasonable basis to say, so for example, in the NFL's case, well, we're losing our audience because of this. And so this is a part of your job. Part of your job is we play this song, you stand. Um, and then I think if they could establish that, then any organization in that situation could say, we, we, we don't only have the right to terminate you, but we have cause to terminate you. And John, I only have 20 seconds here, but if the NFL has allowed players currently or in the past to kneel for other signs of protest, would that change the reality of whether they were allowed to permit or pr- prohibit this one? No, because, I mean, they, they may have condoted in the past, but now they're effectively introducing a new rule. So they, they can't punish them, perhaps, for not having done it in, in the past. But going forward, they've clearly made a, a rule, so they, they can enforce that rule. John Pincus, Labor and Employment Lawyer with Semfir to Mark, and really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. It is time, though, to, um, to bring in... Oh, one of our favorite people in the whole wide world. His name is Bubba O'Neill. He works for CHCH. Sir, how are you tonight? Um, uh, good, good. You know, um, obviously, I think uh, I think we're all sort of, I don't know, nervous or on edge or anticipating. You know, tomorrow's big game between the Bulldogs. Uh, it is a big game tomorrow, ten o'clock. I'm just really thankful that for one night tonight, I can go to bed on time. Not having a game starting at ten o'clock, I'm getting worn out by this. <laughs> they really are. Um, I'm I'm actually going to be okay with it because I'm, I'll be out in Regina tomorrow. So uh, looking forward to that. But I mean, the morning flight's not going to be so great. Oh, you are flying. I was going to say, if anyone sees you hitchhiking along Highway Six, stop and <laughs> help take Bubba and his camera crew <laughs> as far as you can go west, and then someone else will come along and take him. Uh, well, that is good. It's good you're going out there because it's a big event. And the city, thank you know, I'll say this. I want to give credit where credit is due. The city was, I think, very slow on the draw with this, but they have now picked up the ball and the city is having outside City Hall in the forecourt where the new Hamilton sign is that lights up. There are going to be screens up there tomorrow night. And if you want to go and stand and spend some time with other fans and other people from the city to watch, the game is going to be shown right down there in front of the city. That's, that's a good thing. It's, it's important, I think, to have things like this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, I think we saw that in the game against Sault Ste. Marie that would clinch them to get to the Memorial Cup, the coming together of the community and you know, just even uh, I was in the parking lot lining up, you know, to you know to pay on the little pay machine there, and you know, just the lineup and conversation and listening to some of the conversations going on from people all around the city of all different types, and you know, just the, the bonding was unbelievable, and and it goes to show you that you know, and I know sometimes that you know sports gets shoveled down in different categories in people's minds, but it really is something that can bring communities together. It so can. It can. This, 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 is, this is a big one. And there is a chance here to do something, you know, and we've repeated this, I don't want to just beat it into the ground, but uh, if you are under 42 years old, if you have not been on this earth for 42 years, you have not been alive to see Hamilton win a Memorial Cup. So, and there's no guarantee they're going to, but they're close, and as close as they've been in 42 years. So if you are thinking about wanting to do something and mark this, there, there's an opportunity to do it. All right, I want to jump to a different kind of hockey, though. We'll be talking more about that, depending on how they do especially. But there was a piece, I mean, I wrote it in the paper today, uh, talking about 
Angelo Paletta, Burlington businessman, very successful businessman who has expressed interest on the record. They have said that they, he has expressed interest to the NHL in potentially getting a team for Aldershot. Now, I, I don't think it's going to be called the Aldershot Arrows or anything. It's going to be something else. But are, do you have any belief that we are any more likely this time to get a team than we were with Jim Balsillie or we were with Ron Joyce or we were with any of the previous ones before that? You know, I think there are times where, you know, the word peak uh, comes into factor here. And you're right. When the Nashville Predators could have been, you know, the Hamilton Predators, or maybe even the Hamilton Penguins, and Sidney Crosby could be playing here. I mean, those were the days. And I can't exactly track back to what years those were. You'd have to help me out there. 2003, I think, was the Penguins. 2006, I believe, was the Predators. And 2009 was the end of the dream for the Arizona Coyotes. Yeah, right. So I, and I wasn't even sure about the Coyotes thing. I, I, was, I thought, that, quite honestly, the Penguins and the Nashville deals, deals were actually very, very realistic. And I thought probably were Hamilton's greatest chances to, to, have, to, to have sport an NHL franchise. Uh, Scott, this is never going to happen. I never say never, but this is not going to happen. And there's, the, I mean, we're talking about trying to build a stadium to suit the Bulldogs' needs, you know, and, and you know, the one that could attract, you know, conferences and, and concerts. And we're talking about something in the range of an eight thousand seat stadium for an nhl franchise to come here it would have to have all the bells and whistles i mean have you seen the t-mobile arena or at least pictures of it have you seen what's in nashville have you seen some of these new rinks and did you see the price the tag cost? did you see the price tag for it, t-mobile arena exactly five five hundred million roughly in canadian dollars it's a lot of money so so it's my not, it's not happening well and and i'm 99.9 percent with you, and I, I, I do understand why Angelo Paletta is doing this, and that is you let the NHL know that you're interested in the event that somehow down the road somebody decides that they want to move a team or sell a team, you at least make sure they know you're out there because the worst thing that would happen is that it gets sold to someone else and they didn't know you were wanting it. And that you go, oh, that was my one chance. So I get well, where is the funds coming? from? Well, I don't, I don't know, but I get, I get why he is doing this. Make sure his name is out there on a bulletin board somewhere. That if a team is ever for sale, we know to call Angelo Paletta. I, I get that completely. What I still don't find my way around, and where I really have the complication with this is, Bob, it's been generations now that the NHL has made it abundantly clear that Hamilton slash Burlington is not a priority. In fact, it's to the opposite. It's a priority, it seems, to keep a team out of this area. I don't know what is going to change that. It's not even a priority. It's not even, like, low on the priority. No, it's the opposite. It's, 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 it's not even a consideration. It's not even a consideration. I mean, first of all, I mean, think of this. Can you imagine the people in Quebec City with the Videotron Center, a beautiful new building that could house an NHL team, does have all the bells and whistles? I mean, there's a city waiting for a team. You know, what a bunch of morons. What makes anyone think that the National Hockey League will come here or even consider coming here? What a bunch of morons to build an NHL arena without a team on a thought that you could get a team if you had an arena. What city would ever do something that dumb? 
because they Sorry, were led we did. to believe. Because, <laughs> Scott, I'm telling you, they were led to believe that if you build it, that we will come. Uh, and I will, I will, I mean, it would take me a while, but I have heard Gary Bettman say things not exactly to that, but pretty much saying that if there's not even an arena here, we're, there's not even a consideration. And based on the fact that they have had a team, a National Hockey League team, I mean, you put one and two together, and obviously the, there was a few, there was a an issue with expansion, and also it did look like the New York Islanders were suffering with their ownership, and that that team could move there. So it, it seemed realistic that there could be a team there. It seemed realistic in the same way I was being facetious because we also have done the exact same thing. When Cops Coliseum was built, it was on those exact same reasons. You build a rink, we'll bring you a team. We did the exact same thing as Quebec City before Quebec City. And what what ended up, and this is what's going to be the future of Quebec. I I will put money on this because it's what became our future. Every single time, if you have an available, empty, waiting with bated breath NHL city with an arena, what ends up happening is every time another NHL team runs into financial problems and needs to squeeze tax dollars out of their home city, what do they say? Well, then we're just going to move to Hamilton and you become the fulcrum on the seesaw of pressure that they use to try and pry money out of their city. They never intend to move here. I don't believe for a second that any of the times that teams were being talked about before Jim Balsillie, I don't believe that Hamilton was ever a consideration, but boy, we were a very useful idiot to try and get money out of other cities for their teams. And you could be right on that, but I really do believe the Balsillie thing was close. And I, it was I a really lot closer did. than anything else. Yeah, I, I really, really believe it. And, and um, history will prove that Mr. Bolsilly and just the way he acted at the time just wasn't in line to the National Hockey League's liking. And I'm talking about the owners. owners. Yeah, he was very aggressive, very public we, and very, very aggressive. aggressive. We see this in NFL ownership. We see this a lot of times in sports where a lot of times owners are wealthy um aging men that want things done in a certain type of protocol. And Jim Balsilli, Blackberry was hot, everything. He was, he was the mover and groover. And perhaps he was just a little bit too much of a mover and groover. Now, because financially everything made sense. The building made sense. It was all lined up. One of the things, though, that Angelo Paletta is doing is following, it looks like anyway, following the, uh, David, is it David Chip, David Chip, Mark Chipman, the, the owner in, in Winnipeg, who did all of his work, he was the anti-Balsily, he did everything quietly, you didn't even know stuff was going on behind the scenes, and then suddenly a team is available, and look at that, it's gone to Winnipeg. So, if you're going to inject yourself into this, it is very clear, I think, that if you ever, even on a 1% or half of 1% chance, think that you may get a team you've seen what the template is to do it, and that is don't be Jim Balsillie. I mean, bless Jim Balsillie for what he did for Hamilton and for trying to bring it here. This is not a shot on him, but it's very clear the owners bristled and got their back up and were never going to let that guy get a team. So you've got to do it the opposite of how he did it, and that's what what Paletta right now is trying to do. Just work quietly, build some relationships maybe, try and at least make your name be in the mix if a team ever comes up. But again... I'm with you. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, as much as I would love for that to be the case, 
is this the same fellow with the Paletta meets, I guess, yes. in Burlington? You know, like, and I don't know Mr. Paletta. I mean, I would never know him if I met him, you know, walking down the street. And, and I, hope, I hope something works well for this. If, this, if he's serious about this, I mean, uh, I don't know the family. I, I do believe I actually went to school with his son many moons ago. Uh, if this all works out, good on him. And, and you're right. And if, he, if the formula is to keep quiet uh, and just, you know, and, and get things done without many of us in the media hearing anything, well, I hope, I hope everything works out because that would be a great first step. But I'm just looking at the logistics. I'm just looking at the realism here. Uh, and, and I'm looking at the community. I'm looking at Buffalo. I'm looking at Toronto. I don't see it, Scott. I would say there are a couple things that would have to happen before it would even be a realistic discussion. One of them is Gary Bettman would not be the commissioner anymore because he clearly, it's not part of his plan and that's, that's fine. The second thing is, and you don't want this because this is much broader implications than simply hockey, you need to have a significant recession where a few teams find themselves in financial problem. And I don't mean just that they're not drawing tickets, like in real financial difficulty, that would be the second thing. And I think if you're Angelo Paletta, the move here, again, if I'm, I'm interpreting, I'm guessing what's going on, this is a long play. Like, we could be talking 15, 20 years, but you hang around and you make, your name, make sure your name is out there. And maybe in a long time, I mean, I, I don't believe even at whatever percentage of a per- percentage that it's going to happen in the next little while. But maybe in 15 years, maybe in 20 years, who knows what the world looks like at that point. Maybe then someone decides, yeah, we can put another team here. I don't know. I don't. The, the, we, the only team I think realistic, Scott, I think if you're looking long-term, that would have a, a, an inkling or you know, that you could maybe pull out of an area, an, an existing city right now, is Rally. I can't think of another team other than the, the Hurricanes right now that is really, a lot of teams are doing well right now. And I think that's the only team right now that, you know, there's, there's, there's some ownership issues. We've seen a big change in management very recently. I mean, Ron Francis fired as a president of hockey operations. There's some definite unrest there. And that is the only team that I think that, you know what, if, and if you're saying long term, I'm going to think maybe five to ten years that might not work in Carolina. Yeah, and I don't believe, the other thing is, I don't believe the NHL wants a team to move here uh, because that gets the NHL nothing. The NHL gains nothing by one owner selling a team to another owner. They get money when it's an expansion franchise because that's split with all the owners. And if you're going to go into Southern Ontario where you know you can pillage whoever's willing to put up the money, I mean, it was six, it's going to be $650 million U.S. for Seattle. That's about almost $850 million Canadian for an expansion team in Seattle. If you can get $850 million for Seattle, you can get a billion for Southern Ontario, and that is yeah. then split with all the other owners. They don't want Raleigh. They don't want the Carolina Hurricanes to move. If they're ever going to put a team here, it's going to be an expansion team so that they can then get the most amount of money to get all the other owners some cash. You know, and you're, and you're so right with that. I mean, people, what people forget is, you know, the $650 million that Seattle will pay. I mean, you do the math for me. One year prior, pretty much, the Vegas Golden Knights paid $500 million. So look at the increase, the inflation, if you want to say, in just a matter of a couple of years. 
So a couple. So if you take it ten years, as you said, ten years from now, or even five years from now, a team in Hamilton, uh, what will that cost for an expansion fee? And then you have to make it work. And see, this is all, there are so many parts about this because then, okay, now it's a billion dollars, an arena is let's say half a billion. So now you're up to one and a half billion and then it's almost a hundred million a year in salaries. Plus you have to put a front office together and all the rest of the stuff. Your first year, you may be talking in a capital layout. You may be talking about a $2 billion investment to get an NHL team. Can you ever then make money back off that? And now I know what would be happening right around here from what I understand, from what we know before, because don't forget the Paletta proposal originally started back in 2011 and it was when the city in Hamilton was looking for a new for the Pan Am Stadium what became Tim Hortons Field and one of the locations was on a piece of land that the Paletta's own right beside the GO station in Aldershot and they were talking about moving the Ticats there building a stadium building an arena building condos building entertainment I like that area too it's a great area and if you can make a huge development around there around a rink that has condos and entertainment and bars and restaurants and whatever else it's not just a hockey team. It's an entire massive thing. I don't know where the money all comes from. I can see the vision for it, but I'm thinking still that we're talking, even if we're even beginning to hint at this 15 years down the road, probably if that, and then only if things go horribly wrong, some other places. Yes. I just, I, anyway. again, I, 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 you know, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sometimes flustered by these things, these conversations, but like, it's like, you know, I guess you have to have a dream, right? You have to have a dream and you got to start somewhere. So, you know, if this is a starting point, so be it. But boy, like you said, and for many reasons that you stated and I've stated, and there's many more beyond that, this is a long shot. I go back to my point. I think that if the idea that Mr. Paletta is doing is to say, make sure my name is up on the bulletin board so if the day ever comes that a team becomes available and if you're ever willing to open up the idea of Southern Ontario, at least give me a phone call, I think that's a valuable and that's a reasonable thing to do because you don't want to find out that it's been sold to someone else and they never even knew to call you because they didn't know you were interested. That, that to me, makes all the sense in the world. Right. I just don't know how much time and effort you put into the process in the meantime because of the realism issues that may surround us. Anyway, that is, um, if nothing else, we get to talk about an NHL team in this area again. <laughs> we we seem to go about every six or seven years and one comes up. Um, and you know, Bubba, you and I have a few years left to retirement. <laughs> I am reasonably sure that on our last day working at our respective places, we'll be, hey, remember Bubba when we talked about those NHL bi- Let's do a recap of all our NHL bid discussions. It's going to happen. Yeah, on our tombstones, it's going to say, talked a lot about NHL in Hamilton. Nothing happened. He died. Oh, goodness. I wow. hope that when they do land an NHL team here in the year 2,792, that someone, my great, 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 great grandchildren will sprinkle some of my ashes on the ice just remembering the days back in 2018 and before that we spent so much time discussing this. Scott's ashes become the lucky loony. Yeah, except they'll sprinkle my ashes and some guy will skate over it and his skate will slip and he'll pull his groin and I'll be blamed. (laughs) He'll tear out his knee and they'll say, that Radley did it. He's been dead for 700 years and he's still causing people to get hurt. Yeah, the rash of Radley. Well, that sounds even worse. (laughs) 
I'm not giving anyone a rash. Don't don't tell people that. <laughs> Bubba O'Neill, you can catch him tonight on CHCH, and after that, he is moving to Regina to take over as the Saskatchewan Rough Riders beat writer. You can catch him in Regina. He'll be wearing all green from here on. Yeah, check check us out tomorrow for all the updates, and hopefully there's not a you know a, a, a lot of news other than a Bulldogs victory and. Uh, uh, I'm pretty pumped for this. I think this is exciting. It is an exciting time. And and remember also, by the way, if you want to watch the game with some people, tomorrow night, 10 o'clock at the forecourt in front of Hamilton City Hall. You can watch it there. Bubba, thanks for your time tonight. All right. Bye. Travel safely, my friend. Thank you. We will, uh, we'll talk to Bubba another time soon. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.